1: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books Network Seminar. Welcome and thanks for joining us today. I just finished talking with Alex Galloway about his new book, La Against the Digital. This came out in 2014 with the University of Minnesota Press, and I was particularly interested in talking about it for the seminar because I think at its root, the kind of work that the book is doing really transcends individual disciplines. And it's really about kind of helping us to rethink, to think anew about and think anew with some basic fundamental concepts that are relevant really to a number of different disciplines, to a lot of kinds of work that are being done across the humanities, social sciences and sciences right now. So, what the book does is take the case study of the exploration of the work of a particular philosopher, this is Laruel, and it uses it to investigate the notion of the digital. And by digital, I don't just mean computers, I don't mean email or electronic, whatever. I mean the basic fundamental notion of distinction, of difference. And so, at its root, this is a book that's exploring the notion of difference, the notion of identity. And in doing so, it's really giving us, I think, the tools to question our assumptions about some other really basic and very, very pervasive notions like exchange, right? Like representation, I mean, like light and darkness. So there's some really, really fascinating stuff happening here that's asking us to really Look at some of the notions that we take for granted in how we understand, write about, think about the world and Imagine what it might look like if we didn't take those for granted. What would the possibilities be in terms of ethics, um, in terms of politics, in terms of aesthetics, um, in terms of lots and lots of other kinds of things? So it's really fascinating. Um, Alex takes us in really, really clear language and in a, a really, um, I think, very clearly laid out set of descriptions through the work of what might otherwise be a, a you know a difficult um, set of ideas and a, and a difficult kind of um, Um, set of conversations. And it's really a pleasure to read. It's wonderfully clear. And it was a lot of fun to talk with Alex about it. And I think also it's it's a very important book. So I encourage you to get your hands on a copy and to explore the book. Um, And thank you so much for listening to the conversation. I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Alexander Galloway about his new book, La Ruelle, Against the Digital. Welcome to the New Books Network Seminar, Alex, and thanks very, very much for making time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to it. So,
0: Hello. Yeah. Thank you. Great.
1: So can you start us off by saying just a little bit about what brought you to the topic? How did you come not just to work on La Ruelle, but also to decide to write a book-length object about his work?
0: Well, I've been... Um, interested in, uh, critical theory and, um, continental philosophy, um, for a long time. And I sort of, I guess I'd been kind of, um, maybe distracted by the, you know, by the internet, (laughs) distracted by the internet and had, had, um, you know, I've been kind of an amateur coder since I was a kid and, um, had done a lot of work on digital media and trying to think critically about, um, computing and software and digital media. Um, but you know, my, my, my training was really in critical theory and, um, you know, French theory, French philosophy in particular. So I wanted to, after writing some, um, uh, you know, some, some works on, on um new media i wanted to kind of go back to that earlier set of interests and really try to write a um you know a more kind of straightforwardly theoretical or philosophically oriented book um and it just seemed like uh the right topic at the right time you know
1: my cat clearly thinks that's a fascinating story uh, wants to hear more, so she's sitting here eagerly uh, um, anticipating what comes next. Um, now, at several points in the book, um, you mention the term weird, right, to describe um, some of Laurel's work or his thought. Um, and definitely, this is a philosopher whose work hasn't been taken up much, um, at least in kind of mainstream cultural studies and mm-hmm. mainstream philosophy. Were there any particular challenges um, because of that? in um, sort of creating or um, getting support behind a project devoted to the work of a philosopher who hasn't quite, um, you know, maybe a lot of people may not have heard about him, even though he comes across as really, really important in this book.
0: That's true. That's true. And that's a big issue. And, um, you know, I think, I think weird is a, is an adjective that comes up from time to time um, in the context of Laruel. And for me, it was a kind of friendly tip of the hat to um, Anthony Paul Smith, who's also one of the people who's been working a lot in Laruel, doing a lot of translation and writing his own um, you know, work that is dealing with Ra- Laruel at, at some level. And so he's talked about the idea of, of um, kind of the strangeness of the way Laruel thinks. Um, and the stranger is also a a kind of term of art in Larawell's own work. Um, There's also maybe another thing we could talk about, which is um, an interest in the weird, if you will, almost in a a kind of technical sense, right? So people are talking about, um, you know, whether it's H.P. Lovecraft and weird fiction or, um, and here I've been influenced a lot by my friend and um, sometimes collaborator Eugene Thacker and his work on on on, on horror. Um, and, you know, so Larua I think has been picked up by people who are interested in, if you will, kind of weird ontologies. So ontologies that don't, um, make much sense, um, within a, a kind of standard, you know, uh, philosophical lineage.
1: Mm-hmm. Great. Um, and that definitely is something that we'll talk about over the course of the book. So in the preface, you mentioned that though Laruel almost never talks about the digital, as you put it here, there's evidence of the topic on almost every page of his work. Mm. So that's a big, big, big theme. And we'll... um, pretty much get right to that um, in a few minutes. Now, just to kind of situate the listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book within the text, among the other elements of the text provided in the 10 chapters to come, the intro and the conclusion, there are 14 numbered theses. So Mm. those are um, kind of sprinkled throughout the text um, and contextualized and also reiterated in a kind of abbreviated form at the end. So we'll occasionally touch on some of them along the way. Now, in the introduction, called The Oldest Prejudice, um, you, you, know, you call philosophy the oldest prejudice and ask, is it possible to leave it behind? So in the introduction, um, we find you, you mentioned the chief aim of Lavarwell's life's work is to consider philosophy without resorting to philosophy in order to do so, or put another way, to think philosophy unphilosophically. So this, mm. I think, is a perfect um, place to start. Can you say a little bit about what non-philosophy is mm-hmm. um, for Laruel and his work, and what does it mean to do non-philosophy?
0: So this is, the, this is kind of the central issue in, in Laruel as, as, you're, um, as you're making evident here. And what um, maybe I can even read this this sort of outrageous quote that um, I have at the beginning sure. of the book um, because it, it's, I think it's a great way to kind of open up the issue. So this is a, this is a quotation from um, maybe a, a lesser-known small little piece that Larwell wrote. Um, and I love it. It goes like this. Inebriated and bastardized by Plato, <laughs> liquefied and cogitated into concentrate by Descartes, moralized by Kant, whipped by Saad, devoured by Hegel, disgorged by Stirner, conscripted by Husserl, chewed out by Nietzsche, down the wrong pipe of Derrida, turned over by Heidegger, crapped out by Deleuze, <laughs> thrown up by Laruel, and it would ask for more if we let it. So this is <laughs> this is Laruel's kind of, um, you know, this kind of litany of... Um, of kind of abuses, if you will, that, that philosophy has kind of, um, you know, kind of unleashed on the world and, and, you know, he's, he's, he's exaggerating here, of course, and, and poking fun and, uh, indicting himself, uh, in, in the list as well. Um, but the, you know, the gist of it is that, um, Larawell views philosophy as a kind of, um, almost a, a process, um, well, there's a kind of soft theory of it and a hard theory of it. The soft theory of it is that is that philosophy is a process that um, is always about orientating oneself toward an object of reflection. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you don't have to be a philosopher, in other words, to be to be philosophical. You know, artists are philosophical. Um, you know, um, um, you can be philosophical in you know around the breakfast table. Um, but then there's a kind of stronger theory of it, which is that because philosophy always requires an act of orientation, solicitation, um, direction toward some kind of object that it's reflecting on, um, it also has a tendency to kind of be domineering, or even worse, uh, kind of harassing, right? <laughs> so, so in other words, you know, I think somewhere else he basically says, like, you know, why doesn't philosophy just leave the world alone? You know, like, why is philosophy constantly badgering? World, right? Um, philosophy is the thing that always says that it has a rigorous way to deal with X, right? So you can have a philosophy of sport, and you can have a philosophy of gender, and you can have a philosophy of, you know, uh, being rude or something. You know, everything under the sun is um, is uh, available for philosophical reflection. So this is the starting point that that gets Lara well going, and he calls this um, the standard model. Mm-hmm. He says that this is the the essence of the standard model of thinking and, and doing philosophy and so um, so if this is, if you will the oldest prejudice, um, what what do you do right and I think there's sort of two basic things you can do one is you can try to um, you can try to do a better job at reflecting on that history on that process. Mm-hmm. And, and that better job, it might be more sensitive to the world, more sensitive to the objects of, of, of reflection, um, more tactful, right? More gentle or something. Um, for this, this, this is, for Laruel, um, not a viable solution because it, it essentially proposes a philosophical answer to a philosophical problem, right? So you are trying to kind of out-meta the world, um, and this is you know this is the essential um, certainly in, in the modern era, this is the essential philosophical stance, right? So, so somebody like um, Kant um, you know defines the critical stance as the stance in which we are able to provide um, you know the the kind of conditions of possibility for X for knowledge or for. Uh, making judgments about the world, and so this is a kind of response that Laruelle sees over and over and over and over again. So that's that's one avenue. The second avenue, which is the one that he takes, is um, not that the best problem to philosophy is to become a better, uh, better um, you know person who can do philosophy. The best response to philosophy is to stop doing it. And so this, for me, is very exciting because it isn't an anti-intellectual stance. It isn't a you know a kind of um, He's not trying to badger or or berate um, people who, you know, dedicate their life to, um, you know, kind of intellectual pursuits. But he's saying there is a structure. Mm -hmm. There is a standard structure. And um, that's a standard structure that people um, either explicitly or implicitly um, decide to enact. And so his intervention is very simple. He says you can decide not to enact that. You can withdraw from the decision, what he calls the philosophical decision. And if you withdraw from that decision, um, then you discover this kind of, if you will, a kind of parallel universe. (laughs) Um, And that's what he calls the non-standard model, um, or um, a synonym for that is non-philosophy.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much. And you just mentioned a term um, that comes up in your introduction as well in terms of describing the two goals of the book, or at least two goals of the book, which is the term withdraw. So yeah. in, the two goals of the book as laid out in the introduction are, on the one hand, to define digitality and demonstrate its special connection to, with philosophy, and at mm. the same time to show that La Roel withdraws from the digital so to kind of follow this through, let's move directly to this idea of the digital, right? Since yeah. This is completely crucial. Can you um, talk a little bit about that for listeners? I'll just kind of lob the ball back to you. What is the digital um, insofar as you're conceptualizing it here? And how is it um, contrasted with the analog? And, and what's, what's important about that contrast?
0: First of all, I think we have to admit that the digital means a lot of different things. And there are a lot of books and and articles and podcasts and TED talks and um, a lot of resources that we could tap into. um, You know, if we want to try to define that word or or explain what that concept means. Um, And you know, so in in kind of in kind of wading through that material and incorporating it, and you know, sometimes maybe even participating in, in some of those conversations, I. Um, you know, I found myself kind of in a, um, uh, you know, at a kind of dead end. Um, and what I mean by that is that there seemed to be a lot of people who were, um, willing to provide a, um, a philosophy of the digital. In other words, they were willing to say, um, you know, what is X? Okay. What is philosophy? Uh, Sorry. What is digitality? Well, you know, um, we can make a laundry list about, you know, the formal qualities of web pages, or we could say like, you know, what are the essential qualities that make a, um, let's say a video game different from a 19th century realist novel. Um, and there's, there's, you know, fantastic work that's already out there. Uh, people like Lev Manovich who've, who've worked in this area. Um, so, the, so there was that body of work, and then there's another body of work, um, the so-called digital philosophers, the people not so much saying that we want a, um, a philosophy of the digital, but a digitization of philosophy, or a digitization of, of thinking, or even of the world. And this really runs the gamut from a whole, a whole series of um, either straight scientists Um, Sometimes they are mathematicians, people doing philosophy of science or or mathematicians, who who have put forward theories that um, essentially the world at its core is digital. Mm -hmm. So some of these people end up being more or less atomists in the sense that they either... Uh, you know, can provide empirical evidence for or otherwise are proposing that um, the world is fundamentally fundamentally digital. So you have people in computer science working on working in the area of um, cellular automata and showing how you know like life itself can be modeled and uh, out of um, uh, basic cellular entities. Um, so someone like um, Stephen Wolfram is probably the most um, visible, Person working in that area today. So that's kind of what I had um, in front of me. But even across all that work, it wasn't clear to me um, whether anyone had actually sufficiently explored what digitality itself is, right? And it seemed like that word had already come predefined for um, a lot of the people that I had run across. And I'm sure there's people I'm, I'm missing. But um, so I wanted to really just say. Okay, so what is the digital? Let's see how far we can push that question. So is the digital about computers? Well, you know, that answer gets 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 um you know, that question gets answered pretty quickly. You pretty, you know, if, if you say, "Well, the digital is about um computation." Well, you know, there's a lot of ways to do computation that doesn't, you know, require a computer. There are analog computers, um, etc. Um, so then, so then what is the digital in fact? Is it about zeros and ones? Well, maybe, um, you know, we can swap in other, other tokens um, in there. It doesn't have to be a zero. It doesn't have to be a one. Um, so maybe the digital actually is just about a kind of fundamental ability to make a distinction between something and something else. Um, now, binary, you know, base two mathematics, zero and one that mathematics is a very effective way of doing that. Um, but um, I think that there's maybe even something that comes before that base two mathematics that still needs to be explained. So with, with that in mind, I, you know, put forward a kind of um, hypothesis that the digital means um, and this is what's given in the book that the digital means um, whenever you have the one dividing into the two you have a process of digitality the one dividing into two and then the 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 the, the you know the, the the pair hypothesis that goes with that is that the analog or analogicity means um, the two coming together as one mm-hmm. so that those are the kind of that, that's a kind of hypothesis that that fuels the exploration into the digital in the book, and the reason why I feel um that I can talk about digitality in a book that is really about theory and philosophy is that well, you know the one is <laughs> um probably the oldest um single topic in in western philosophy um it's in Parmenides. Right? It's in Plato, it reoccurs in any number of thinkers, um, and, and it's certainly alive and well in contemporary philosophy, particularly French philosophy. Um, the one is um, something that has a very important role to play in the work of Gilles Deleuze. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a huge role to play in the work of um, Alain Badiou. Who I would say is probably the single most influential French thinker working today, um, and then it has uh, really a kind of marquee status in the work of Laruelle. It's, it's probably the single central theoretical issue that he's dealing with. So, given that the one was so um, is and and was so prevalent in the history of philosophy, I felt like um, it was just kind of too tantalizing not to say, well. You know, we have digitality, which is, which is all about ones and twos, or zeros and ones, but really ones and twos. And then you have philosophy, which, since its very founding, has had to wrestle with the question of the one, the other, the one, the multitude, the one, the many.
1: That's right. I mean, I think these basic issues of distinction... An identity. Yeah, I mean, these are fundamental, and these are... Um, I think this is one of the reasons, one of the many reasons that I was really looking forward to talking about the book, and that I really appreciated the book, because you don't have to be a philosopher, right? I mean, in any number of fields of the arts and sciences right now, these problems of basically at you know at their root distinction and identity. Yeah. You know they really animate so much of what so many of us in so many fields right across the arts and sciences are concerned with right now. So having a language to begin to talk about that that's not disciplinarily rooted um, yeah. is actually really useful.
0: Yeah. No, I think you I think you're right that that um, you know this is a book about Laura and digitality, but it's actually really a book about as you say. distinction and identity or, or even we could say difference and identity, you know, difference has been a, a super important, um, theoretical problematic for, for a long time. Um, and so that's also something that, um, reemerges in, in this project as well.
1: That's right. So, as we move into the book, um, we move from a definition that you just um, elaborated a little bit on of the analog, the two coming together as one, to kind of explore some more characteristics of the one, right? As we kind of move <laughs> forward into um, the rest of the book. And in the first chapter, which is part of the first part of the book, La Royal and the Digital, you talk about the one in terms of the real and in terms of imminence Mm. because this idea of imminence is actually really important. um, I think to what comes next, can you talk a little bit about, um, the kind of work that imminence is doing here? What's important for us to understand about imminence in order to understand the larger work that the book is doing?
0: Mm. Well, first let me say, you know, let me acknowledge something that's really important here, which is that, um, you know, um, you know the the one has a bad reputation let's you know let's let's be clear about this <laughs> you know you know particularly if you know i was reared essentially on critical theory and feminism and you know marxism and cultural studies and identity politics and you know i kind of come out of that tradition and in that tradition the one has a really bad reputation and the reason is you know the one is considered to be um You know, on the side of essence, on the side of a kind of, let's call it a kind of, um, you know, naive, um, sense of unity, um, the, the tendency to, let's say, privilege the self rather than, um, the other or, or unity rather than, um, um, alterity or difference or something like that. So I fully acknowledge that this is a, um, that this is a potentially, um, Controversial or maybe even, I don't know, might really turn people off. Um, for me, and, and to go back to, you know, some of the opening issues about why I'm motivated to, to get to this material is that I feel like we're at a real important turning point now in, um, in sort of, you know, how people think about the world and, and the capacities of criticism and whether criticism is even something we can do anymore. <laughs> and for me, we, we've hit a kind of wall, which is that, you know, we really live in a world where, um, you know, that that is rooted in co- the concepts of multiplicity difference. Um, you know, the computer is a difference engine, you know, I mean, that's what it is. And so I feel like that the kinds of methodological approaches that have so fueled critical theory for a generation, um, are not things we have to throw out by any means, but I do think that they're kind of this kind of juggernaut is now, um, I don't know, maybe maybe slowing down a little bit, and uh, we need to you know really kind of rethink a lot of these essential questions. So, um, I guess for me, the holy grail is really to try to see if. Um, some of these basic terms that, um, let's say, postmodern theory had definitively thrown out, right? Um, maybe there's something useful that we can exhume from some of these previously buried terms. Um, so, you know, Alan Baidu, for example, has, has famously brought... Um, truth back, you know, as something that people can talk about again. Um, the thing that postmodernism thought it had definitively destroyed. Um, and so maybe somebody like Laruel is allowing us to bring back, um, the concept of, um, if not maybe the one, then a concept of identity. Um, I think there's a lot of kinship here with the notion of the common or commonality that is a big deal in a lot of other people's work. um, Or a term that I know we're going to probably want to get to um, soon here, uh, a term that Laruel uses a lot, which is the generic. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there's a kind of kinship or um, resonance established between a series, um, a series of terms there that kind of come together around the one. Um, So for me, you know, uh, uh, the if if you you asked about imminence and mm-hmm. um, part of the oldest prejudice of philosophy, I think is that uh, and you know philosophers i 'm sure will disagree with me on this point, but I, I think it's defendable, um, which is that for me philosophy always tends toward having a transcendental relationship to the world, in other words, philosophy is kind of on the side of the transcendental now, I uh, oppose to that and, and as a kind of alternative to, to that is the concept of imminence. And so I, I define immanence in a very straightforward um, um, way, which is that imminence is um, the, 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 the condition of remaining within, right? Um, when something remains within itself, um, when it does not have to go outside of itself in order to realize itself, um, that's, That's the condition of imminence. So imminence is something that, um, I think we can differentiate from, um, again, a more standard, if you will, standard philosophical or metaphysical model in which things in order to realize themselves, themselves have to go outside of themselves, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, um, you know, um, you know, God has to give His only begotten Son. Right? I mean, there, 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 there are theological um, uh, tinges to this that we could describe, or even in a, in a more kind of strictly secular sense, um, dealing with ontology. You know, essence has to kind of outer itself or go outside of itself and it instantiate itself into things in the world, or. If you want to go from the perspective of mankind, or from um, the, the kind of um, you know perspective of the mundane, you could say things in the world in order to realize themselves must you know I don't know fulfill their their teleological arc or something or um, you know the, this is the the, the language um, that that metaphys in which metaphysics speaks. Um, so that's what I mean when I say that 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 standard tradition in philosophy tends toward. Um, the transcendental imminence is the state when you don't have to go outside of yourself in order to realize yourself and so i think that um that um the one and imminence um basically go together they're more or less the same thing
1: great thank you so much and let's um this is a really nice place i think from which to move on so you talk about in this early part of the book, in the first part of the book, a number of concepts and terms um, with which we can kind of build out from Laruel's work to understand what he's doing and to understand the stakes um, and how to kind of do non-philosophy in this way or what that might look like. So mm. I'm not going to ask you to talk about the details <clears throat> so that we have time to get to some of the really super cool stuff on, you know, the, um, the aesthetics and etc. Mm. at the end, yeah. but I'll just mention... <laughs> For listeners, that there's some really interesting work here on the idea of the prevent. Is that am I pronouncing that right? Okay.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I made it up. <laughs> oh, you made that up. Okay. So let's.
1: Um, so there's this. Let's kind of use this as a way to segue into the kind of what's happening um, next. So. There is, uh, you made up this notion. I'm, I'm really glad to hear that because that's exciting. Um, this notion of the prevent, okay. This is something that's really crucial to what's going on early in the book. And it's also something that we can kind of, um, treat in contradistinction to or in relation with the notion of the event. Um, right. Which, um, comes up later. So it's a way to kind of, um, uh, move from here to what comes later can you talk about and also because you made up this concept so let's mark that and <laughs> celebrate that let's um talk a little bit about the prevent. what do we need to understand about the prevent and its relationship or not to the idea of an event um in or to understand what you're doing with digitality and lara here and what's important about this notion of the event as it animates lara work
0: yeah. So um, you know, so in in reading up on Laruel and trying to uh, you know sort out, it, it's 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 tough going a lot of the time, and trying to sort out well, you know, what is what what's his basic theory of you know how does he wrangle ontology? You know, what's his stance on the ethical? What's his stance on the political? What's his stance on art and so on? Um, the event is a again a kind of age old topic for. Or, um, theorists and philosophers to contemplate and so um, the notion of the prevent is really a way to and it comes directly from the the um, he has some important um, essays some of them actually the earliest ones that were translated into English um, one of them is about um, Larwell's theory of the event and um, so he kind of puts forward this notion that um, you know uh, that there's always a kind of positivity or um, productivity or generative capacity that's always been embedded in the concept of the event. Um, and what I love about Ruelle is that he wants to say, well, that's great, but why can't we also have a concept of the of an event that is about undoing mm-hmm. and unmaking? Mm-hmm. And but 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 do it without cheating, right? In, in other words um, don't just say, well, um, when you undo, you're still doing an event, but it's an event in reverse or something, right? He means no, literally stop eventing, Mm -hmm. stop making events, stop doing events, stop eventing. It's very similar to what we said at the top about, um, the philosophical decision and, um, realizing that you can, that you can decide not to, um, which, which again, isn't a new decision, right? It's not a, a meta decision that comes after the philosophical decision. It's it's simply an ab, an abstention, if you will. And so, I think that the that the prevent um, is opens up a space to think about a form of event that is an undoing. Um, so the prevent is a kind of um, you know, it's a kind of play on words that is meant to encapsulate both. Um, uh, prevent as prevention. Mm -hmm. So kind of, uh, preventing something from happening, right? Like if you don't want the harassment of metaphysical hierarchies, what do you do? Well, you can fight them or you can undo them. Right. And so prevention, I think is, is part of that. But then there's also another aspect, um, hopefully embedded in this word, which has to do with pre event, meaning the thing that comes before the event,
1: Awesome. And so this, is, this becomes really, really interesting and kind of around the fourth chapter of the book when you take us into this idea of, okay, well, you know, event has often be under, been understood as a kind of relation or as a decision. Yeah. So how do we understand what an event is and how an event an event is in a context where kind of the point is to withdraw from that decision, right? So yeah. what so how do we get our heads around that? And there's a, a whole chapter that I think really, really nicely goes into that and sort of conceptualize the mm. conceptualizes the event as a prevent.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the event is a is a big topic of discussion these days, and I'm not mm-hmm. claiming to have the last word on it. You know, I think Zizek just published a, a new book on the event that yeah. um, a lot of people are reading. And um, the event is um, a central issue in the work of Alan mm-hmm. Um So in that chapter, um, I wanted to describe what I see as two um kind of prevalent ways of thinking about events today and then using um, Badieu and Deleuze, Alan Badieu and Gilles Deleuze, as um, kind of ready um, examples of the two positions. And one has to do with um, the event as um, a, a decision. And so this is a kind of, I think this is a pretty common way of thinking about an event, right? Like um, you want something to change and so um, you enact a kind of, you know, you kind of you kind of enact or or precipitate um, that change, um, and 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 so the event then becomes a kind of um, decision point or a, a point of articulation, right? A, a curve or a, a veering in the in the course of events. Um, but then the second one has to do with relation, and and this is I think slightly different, but it what it what it what it means is that. Um, you know, the difference between any two things or any two states of affairs is simply the series of things or events that you would have to enact in order to translate one configuration into another configuration,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? In other words, an event is just um, the kind of relation between um, now and the future or the past and now or something, um, so this is a much more it has much more currency I think actually in computation and in the the cybernetic legacy right um, dealing with states um, you know state changes um, so anyway that that's that's a kind of summary of, of the chapter on the event and then I wanted to introduce Lara Wells' notion of the prevent as a, as really what I see as a kind of um, You know, an alternative that you really don't see in in, um, the existing conversations about the event.
1: Great, Thank you. So this actually brings us, um, I think, nicely into the second part of the book. Um, You mentioned the importance of Deleuze, and this is something that very much is at the heart of Chapter 5. So part part two of the book, Withdrawing from the Standard Model, explores computers and capitalism, among other things, which, as you put it here, are two important aspects of digitality as it actually exists, right? Mm as a way to, as you put it, outline some of the necessary conditions for withdrawing from the standard model of philosophy. So what, what kinds of conditions might you know make it possible to do um, what uh, we've just read about the possibility of doing in the first part? So Chapter 5 takes on computers, and it considers, um, among other things, the work of Deleuze as a way to understand La Ruelle. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the really interesting things that you're doing here is talking about um, the idea of a control society, the politics and aesthetics of a control society in the work of Laroel and Deleuze. Um, So could you talk a little bit about that? What's important about that notion in order for us to to understand, in order for us to understand more broadly what the work that you're doing in this second part of the book?
0: So that chapter is... um you know, it's a kind of intermission. Um, the, um, you know, the, the, there's a lot going on in the, in this book and I wanted to give the reader a chance to kind of pause a little bit in the middle and um, and have a kind of uh, break. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I kind of try to have fun with these things and, and the, the table of contents and the organization of the book also has a kind of, like, binary structure to it to the extent that, that you can pull that off and... Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted—I really wanted the book to have um, ten chapters, one zero chapters, and and um, <laughs> people who understand binary will will, will get the joke. Um, and uh, and so in the middle, um, uh, I wanted to really kind of deal with computation, um, maybe not again, like not in terms of binary numbers or zeros and ones, but to think about this, um, you know, this this concept that emerges really in the late Deleuze, the concept of um, the society of control. And um, so that chapter is really about, um, it's really about, well, I don't know, there's a few things going on, but it's really about kind of periodizing Deleuze and trying to put Deleuze's reception, particularly in the English-speaking world, let's say over the last 10 or 15 years, um, in a larger context. And to make an argument for um, maybe a more political or, or if you will, sustaining what was always a very political aspect of Deleuze's work. I think I think the, the biggest thing that's happened to Deleuze in the last decade or 15 years is that he's become essentially um, either an apolitical thinker in a lot of people's minds or has become a kind of unwitting um, reactionary figure these days. Um, so part of that chapter is is, is has to do with um, trying to reclaim a much more politicized um Douglas and you know he's 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 very old when he writes this this essay called Postscript on Control Societies um it's at the very end of his life um he had health problems and i think that um you know like i say in the chapter i think that um you know maybe at a certain point this will become um really a canonical essay that will be um, um kind of a classic Essay that really defines his entire body of work, which it really hasn't been um, until maybe you know more recently. So that's that's part of what I'm trying to do in that. It's to re- really recapture um, um, a, a skepticism or even a kind of pessimism that is evident um, at this late stage in his life, where he's looking at you know the advanced industrial society around him, and uh, you know he's really worried about it. Mm-hmm
1: thank you and now there's another chapter that i would love to talk with you about for an hour but we have to get to the <laughs> aesthetic stuff so um so we will i'll just mark and mention for listeners there's an entire chapter chapter six on capitalism which is mm. fascinating um it talks about Well's particular kind of Marxism, right? You say he's a Marxist, but he's a Marxist in kind of an unusual way um, so far as he's got this critique of capitalism that denies exchange. Yeah. Um, You know, maybe we should just talk a little bit about that because (laughs) (laughs) and then, you know, and then we'll get to the aesthetics. This idea of exchange is so important here. Um, Can you say just a little bit about that? Sort of what's important about this in terms of the larger (laughs) work that the book is doing?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that, that I, that really has sustained my interest in Laravel is, um, is that he, you know, how can we put it? He kind of breaks all of these rules and, you know, like all of the things that you're taught, you know, if you, if you study, you know, I don't know, theory or something, um, he really kind of breaks a lot of the, the, the expected um he, he deviates from a lot of the expected um stances on things. And so part of the fun of reading him is almost kind of, you know, daring yourself to um to reevaluate um uh, maybe some of the um orthodoxies that you've internalized or that I've internalized. So, like I said earlier, you know, having to do with the one um me, you know, it took me a long time to really come around and see that um that's a concept that shouldn't just be dismissed. Mm-hmm. So, the chapter on on capitalism and on Marxism came; it, it, it was born in uh, out of very sim- very simple circumstances, which is that um, Laruelle wrote a book on Marx, um, which has recently been translated into English, um, and uh, you know he. Um, I can just even say, as an aside. One of the things that is most, I think, useful about laravel and at the same time maybe something that um, aggravates people is that um, he's really the inventor of a method. And anyone who invents a method, if it works well enough, it becomes a kind of, you know, like Swiss army knife that they just um, bring out and brandish in every circumstance. And that's kind of what Laruelle does, right? So his method is so useful and so effective that he can bring it out and do a non-philosophy version of anything, right? So he can, there can be a non-Marx and there can be a non-Badieu and there can be a non derrida and a non-Déleuze. Um, so he does that with, with Marx. And, um, what comes out of it is that, um, you know, we, 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 we haven't really gotten to this aspect of the one, but one of the things that, that is entailed in um, the withdrawal from philosophy and this exploration, the exploration of this standard model is that the typical way of thinking about relations, mm-hmm. relations between things, and a kind of sister concept which is causality Those the typical way that those things are 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 talked about has to kind of go away, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because the one can't have any relationship to anything. Otherwise, it's not the one, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so, and so, Lardwell ends up inventing a parallel set of I won't. I I won't really call them relations or relational structures because that would be misleading, but he comes up with a parallel set of things that kind of take the place of what would be relational or relationship concepts in other people's thinking. And what I love is that the most important one for him, he actually gets from Marx. (laughs) And he, I should say, he actually gets it from the way in which Marx was read in the French tradition, particularly through the work of Louis Althusser, who, as you know, is you know one of the single most um, influential Marxist thinkers, particularly for um, a kind of more rigorous mode of Marxist theory. Mm-hmm. And you know, Althusser has, has you know suffered many deaths over the years, and um, and interestingly, today is one, peop- one of the people. is one of the people who's really trying to bring him back or bring back a certain Althusserian interpretation of Marx and so the concept that is at the root of all this is the concept of determination determination Mm -hmm. so determination becomes um, you know it it sort of it doesn't replace the concept of relation or exchange but as I said it sort of does um, it's a kind of cognate it has a kind of cognate function or something for well that um relation or exchange might have in other and other thinkers. Um so I know I'm kind of beating around the bush and and the chapter really isn't about, you know, I don't know, the labor movement or you know, like revolution or you know, bolshevism or something. That's not really what the chapter is about, but it's about um you know, the notion well maybe exchange is actually the most violent thing that capitalism does. Mm-hmm.
1: And that's right? like, that's a hugely important point, Yeah, right? That's like a, whoa, hold on, stop everything, yeah. what do you do? It's another way I think where um, the book is really profound in speaking to a wide range of kinds of um, ideas and practices right now that like assume exchange and the importance of exchange even without realizing that we're doing that. Yeah,
0: you know? yeah. And I think part, part of the reason is that you know, it's not like nobody has has looked at this. I mean, mm-hmm. um, but I think part of the reason is that post-structuralism and that, um, and actually just semiotics and, you know, that kind of linguistic turn in general, um, really had to um, retain a concept of exchange. That was not something that could be thrown out at that moment, right? Because, you know, if you're doing semiotics or you're doing post-structuralism, you have to have... Um, a notion of, a kind of the kind of circulation of science, right? So it really comes out, it comes directly out of, um, you know, maybe Freud, but certainly a Marxist tradition of looking at economic systems, circulation, accumulation, exchange. So I think that the, that legacy was so closely connected and, and wedded to the concept of exchange that it couldn't conceive of a theoretical stance that um, did away with that.
1: That's right. And like yep. so much right now of the humanities is going toward or is already firmly um, moving in the direction of you know, studies of circulation and um, movement mm. and economy, et cetera. So this yeah. would be, I think a really, really interesting conversation to have is to get a bunch of like global historians or historians of like commodities into a room together, uh, yeah. read this chapter or read the book and sort of have a conversation about what the um, potential <laughs> impacts might be. Maybe we'll do that.
0: They would probably do that. Oh,
1: that's, that's, that's maybe not.
0: Um, <laughs> um,
1: so, okay, so there's a couple more things that I want to make sure um, we have a chance to talk a little bit about, although we could keep talking about, you know, this idea of exchange and his engagement with Marx. Um, we I want to talk a little bit about aesthetics. Um, yeah. Aesthetics is a recurring theme in Laurel's work, and there's a, at least a couple of chapters that deal directly with this. We won't talk about um, the black universe in any depth, although there is a really wonderful chapter, chapter 7, that looks at and explores notions of blackness and light, kinds of darkness, and the ways that these inform and are informed by Um, Laruel's work and the idea of the digital more broadly. And then there's a chapter, chapter eight, that looks at art and utopia and is one of Mm -hmm. my favorite, favorite, favorite parts of the book, in part because, um, speaking of nons, right, non Marx, non X, you're looking at the possibility of a non representational aesthetics. In this chapter, which is itself a really interesting idea, non-representational aesthetics, like what would that look like? What could that look like? And doing it through an examination of the work of a super duper cool Hungarian <laughs> artist, <laughs> August von Um So can you maybe as, talk a little bit about that? What? like what would it mean to have or to think with a non-representational aesthetics and how does the work of this super duper cool Hungarian artist help get us to thinking mm. in those terms?
0: That's the chapter I wrote. Um, that's the last chapter I wrote for the manuscript. And um, I don't know. I mean, I, th- I think I, 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 um, I think there's a lot of stuff that got, that got poured into that chapter and it, it's actually one of the chapters that I'm most proud of, not so much because of what was produced, but because of the process that went into doing it. Um, it it's the most archival, in fact, um, of, of all the chapters. And it, I got started on it um, sort of from a favor, um, because of a favor. Um, um, one of Laruelle's former students, the, um, the gallerist um, Miguel Abreu, happened to have, a, you know, a, a a banker's box in his apartment filled with old um, Xeroxes and unpublished notes and manuscripts from Laruel. And mm. uh, a lot of them have to do with his work on art. Um, some of them were published in French, um, in sometimes in, in some very obscure places. And so they, I could track them down by other means, but it was just nice to get this kind of trove of... Of documents, and so I really wanted to try to filter through all that stuff, and um, you know, not give the definitive essay on Larwell's aesthetics, but really, you know, provide a lot of maybe even new material that other people working on Larwell hadn't um, had a chance to get to yet. And um, one of the moments that was a real revelation for me was when I um, ran across a uh um, an essay that Laro had written on this artist that you mentioned um, August von Briesen. and uh, so I was you know thinking wow this is interesting because um, one of the things that Lawell does is he almost never talks about uh, well he never acknowledges who his influences are mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and he's very cagey in that way and he, and he also will never kind of seed um, to other philosophers and sort of acknowledge, you know, that they have a legitimate stance or something. Right. Um, and so the few moments when he does that, your eyes really light up. So he will mention Michel Henry, um, in, in a positive light. Right. And he will, he will from time to time mention certain other people in, in a positive light. And and those are moments that really kind of, um, stand out. And so to see that he had actually written on a real artist, was exciting for me. Um, he also wrote a piece on, um, James Terrell, the artist who uses, um, light and, and space in very interesting ways. Um, and so that also is, is in the chapter. Um, and so this, uh, this guy, August von von Briesen was a real mystery trying to track it, track him down. Um, he was an expatriate who eventually settled in Paris, um, uh, you know, a very eccentric person um, who would um, he was a devotee of the concert hall and he would um, go to uh, concerts uh, habitually and bring his uh, his uh, pencil and paper and he would sit in the orchestra pit not in the, in, the, in the auditorium proper, but he would sit in the orchestra pit and then furiously he would draw music Right, and so then this, and and the and the, the works that are produced are are really spectacular. They almost kind of, I think the closest connection would be something like um, Kandinsky's work. Um, the and you know his his work is also very musical, um, trying to capture, um, in Kandinsky's terms, trying to kind of ca- capture, um. um the 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 level of spirit the spiritual um and so you know i was exploring this and then it turns out that michel henry had written on this artist uh very interesting it turned out that a, a few other um uh um you know uh, um notable french figures had written on this guy so that was what um, kind of fueled my exploration into this. And I finally got a copy of the, of the manuscript. You know, um, uh, uh, I think Lara Well said he didn't even have a copy of it, but it, it was in the, the Bibliothèque Nationale. And so it took me months to get a, 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 a mimeograph of this thing. Um, and, uh, anyway, so that's how that, that chapter was born. I ended up finally getting in touch with, um, uh, the daughter of that artist. Um, and it turns out he had really he had just kind of created um, he had created this fantasy world, right? He, he invented his own um, his own quote unquote foundation <laughs> that <laughs> that had a fancy um, name. It was named after a, a kind of Euro- it had a European kind of aristocratic sounding name, um, and so he he was really a kind of um, a, kind of in a in a sense a kind of huckster or. Um, a master of self-promotion, right? So he, he, he published his own beautiful catalog essays, um, or, sorry, his own beautiful catalog where he got these you know, philosophical luminaries to write for it. <laughs> but it really was his own imprint, right? Um, so anyway, that, that, that was like, kind of the more fun archival stuff that went into um, writing that chapter on Laurel's theory of art. Great.
1: Thank you so much. And you, um, you take us into using this example the kind of idea of an aesthetics of the imminent right so mm. the imminence from the very beginning of our conversation rather than an aesthetics of the transcendental so this is something mm. that um we're, we're going to get to the generic we're going to get there so <laughs> we're going to get there i'll just mention this without asking you to go into um, too much detail but for our listeners who are particularly interested in um the kind of aesthetic consequences of thinking the imminent rather than thinking the transcendental. And um, This is mm. a really, really nice chapter to explore to do that. Okay, so the generic, Alex, this is something that came up at the beginning. It's the last body chapter of the book, and so I've saved it to the end. What is the generic? What's the big deal about this, and what do we need to understand about the idea of the generic to understand the kind of Um, to understand the work that you're doing um, here in the book, but also to understand perhaps the larger stakes of this um, Mm. project.
0: The generic comes out of, um, again, one of these sort of age-old problems in Western philosophy, which is the relationship between uh, the particular and the universal. The particular and the universal. So... And you know, philosophers love to do this. They're they they always say like, "Well, you know, consider this desk, right? Or consider this tree. Um, you know, how do I know that this tree is the same tree today that it was, that, you know, than it was yesterday when I when I sat under it, contemplating the meaning of life? Um, in other words, how does this particular tree have a relationship with, let's say, I don't know, the universal category of tree, or in the metaphysical tradition, some kind of essential tree?" So Larawell, along with a number of other people who we could also talk about, think that, you know, more or less think that that conversation is a bunch of hooey (laughs) and really just not worth pursuing anymore. And so the generic is a way to more or less throw out this death match between the particular and the universal and replace it with an alternative that doesn't lapse into this kind of back and forth, you know, never ending conversation about, well, is it the particulars Is the universe? Um, mm-hmm. and so the generic, uh, the way to think about the generic is, is I think you can think about it along, um, similar lines, um, to what we said at the top about, um, withdrawing mm-hmm. and, um, opting not to decide in favor of the philosophical. So, um, people like Giorgio Agamben, um, even Hardin Negri, um, People like um, Alan, do have experimented with the logic of um, sort of subtraction? Is maybe one way we could we could we could put it. And what do we what do I mean by logic of subtraction? Well, there's a the notion of um, you know what is a person? What is what is what is a thing if not the the accumulation of the qualities of that thing, the experiences that that person. Um, you know, kind of um, accrues throughout the course of his or her life. Um, and so it's, it's a kind of a, a, a model of accumulation or, or adding qualities or experiences to things. And the subtractive model is one that says, well, what if you start to erase all of those predicates, what if you say that something is not the sum of all of its experiences, qualities, adjectives, epithets—the things that that describe it? Um, you know, the the kind of you know, the kind of the, the terms that describe um, the qualities of things. And so, if you erase those predicates, um, you know, Agamben has this has this lovely way of putting it. He says, "You get to." the whatever. <laughs> so he says, you have the thing, whatever it is.
1: I can so get behind have, a philosophy the philosophy of the whatever. Sorry. What? I, I can get behind a philosophy of the whatever. Yeah.
0: But yeah I yeah. just love
1: that. Okay. Sorry. Go on.
0: Um, yeah. Uh, and actually an interesting young French, um, theorist, um, Tristan Garcia has a nice play on words where he, he uses the, this, this colloquial French term, um, n'importe quoi. Um, and it's been translated into English as whatever, um, uh, and and I don't know, I think there's I think there's a lot to that. Um, I make connections too with the common in the work of Hardin Negri and others. Um, so the generic is is um, is that you know it's 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 the person whatsoever he or she is, but it's different from the particular, right? It's not the particular. Um, in that sense, and of course it's not the the universal, it's not some kind of, you know, we have not now graduated into the universal subject um, you know, this is not a kind of um, you know, um, a kind of classic liberal model of a, um, a kind of individual who has been um, uh, set free from all the particularities of his or her culture and history and become a kind of abstract person or a kind of transcendental person. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, a a huge misconception that often um, uh, comes up in discussions of the generic. I think the generic is totally different. It has nothing to do with that. The generic is not about um, removing yourself from the the particularities of culture and history. It's in fact, counterintuitively, I grant you, but it's in fact – the most fully embedded um, state, I think, vis-a-vis um, the, ma- the normal material conditions of life. Great.
1: Well, Alex, thank you so much for taking us through um, some of the highlights in what I think is a really exciting book that I think, you know, again, like I've said, has potentially very wide ramifications if we um, kind of turn our attention to it. So there's a ton of material in here that we haven't had a chance to talk about. There are entire chapters right, on politics and ethics and victimhood and and darkness and light um, that we haven't talked about um, and haven't had time to in this hour. Um, Granted, and given that, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners? And if so, perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers
0: well the um, you know the the book does have a, an arc to it, and the, the the place where the book ends is um, what we just talked about the concept of the generic <laughs> but the larger background there is really um, trying to think about the status of politics and ethics today, so I think one thing that Lara Willett participates in. Um, maybe not even consciously, I'm not sure is what we could call a kind of ethical turn in contemporary thinking. Um, meaning that I think that there is, um, and I make a very clear distinction between the political and the ethical. And I I don't think there's a single political word in all of Laruel, but I think everything in Laruel pertains to the ethical. Um, so that's also something. Again, I, I don't think we'll have time to go into it, but that's that's maybe a, a, something I could flag for potential readers um, if they're interested in, in the ethical turn and what it means today. Um, and I'm of two minds of this. You know, I mean, I'm a Marxist and I have a, a great interest and investment in in the political. Um, so I don't think that well offers everything, um, but he certainly offers a extremely rigorous and interesting. Um, theory of, uh, um, of the ethical.
1: So now that the book is out and congratulations on what I think is a really exciting book, what's next for you? What are you working on now and what's uh, currently inspiring
0: you? I'm going to try to do, uh, as little as possible. <laughs> um, I, uh, yeah, no, I think I'm going to take a break. Um, I think I'm going to take a break from, uh, any kind of big ambitious project mm-hmm. Um, there are certainly some some themes and, and topics that really interest me. Um, I've been doing some more coding recently, um, teaching coding to undergraduates right now, which is really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, thematically, I'm, I'm interested in some of the things that did come up in the book that, that maybe weren't entirely um, explored. So you mentioned the concept of night or darkness. Um, I, I've become fascinated with The notion of um, obfuscation Mm -hmm. and opacity, which I think has a huge, um, is is just hugely influential and and interesting in where theory is going today. Mm -hmm. So um, that's maybe something that I would want to work on in the future.
1: That's really cool. I just, um, just along those lines, I just talked with someone who's working on complit in Chinese literature specifically, who's making a similar argument for the importance of fog smog and sort of this as a a way forward. So that would, I would go to that. uh,
0: Fantastic. I would go to that
1: conference. So Alex, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. Congratulations on a fantastic book and thanks very, very much.
0: Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to have, um, you know, a conversation with someone who's read it and has such a, um, you know, informed position on it. So thank you.
1: You've been listening to the New Books Network Seminar. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.